0: Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Seth Siegel. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our friends at Kettle One Botanical who helped make today's episode possible. The Goop team loves a good bar cart. We sell a beautiful one on the site, custom built by designer Chris Earle. And if you've come to one of our pop-ups or in Goop Health, you might have sampled some of the custom cocktails that go along with it which are often made with Kettle One Botanical. Kettle One Botanical, for the uninitiated, is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no carbs and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. You can order your own Kettle One Botanical at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.
1: Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, Want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go.
0: For me, our
2: soul is like, it's unbound. It's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves.
1: When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered.
2: Courageous participation attracts positive things.
1: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is The Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. New York
0: Times bestselling author Seth Siegel is a water activist and the author of Troubled Water, What's Wrong with What We Drink, and Let There Be Water, which is about water scarcity. It may seem like a dense or dull subject, but I'm telling you, these are fun and captivating reads. Today we're talking about the flaws in our water systems and the fact that it's often flooded with tens of thousands of chemicals that have never been tested for safety. While most of us take clean drinking water for granted, we don't realize that our water supply is far from pure. In addition, the use of lead and water pipes is still a major issue and is still contaminating our water supply across the board. Siegel believes strongly that this is something we have the capability to fix and potentially with less effort and money than we think. In fact, there are systems in America, that are giving us all a lot of hope. Instead of reverting to parallel solutions like bottled water, he offers new strategies and perspectives on the way we can fix our water system for good.
2: Many, many people that we think of as, you know, people who think of themselves as smart and hip and know what they're going on and care about their health, don't realize what they're ingesting.
0: I'll let Seth Siegel take it from here. Well, thanks for being here. I know it's been long long plotted, (laughs) lots of emails in anticipation of the publication of your book, Troubled Water. And it's amazing. Not only is it such an interesting and important issue, but it's such an interesting read. Actually, I would say it doesn't seem like it's an interesting issue, but it's an interesting book and it makes it a very interesting and prescient issue.
2: I have a friend who's a journalist who said that when I told him I was going to start writing books about water, he said, don't do it. He Mm -hmm. said, you won't get anyone to read your books. He said, it's a topic that we call in journalism, worthy but dull. Yeah. So my first book came out around the same time he had a book come out, and mine ended up on the New York Times bestseller list, and his didn't. Did you give (laughs) him
0: the middle finger?
2: I did not, but I did send him a, a page where it said, you know, New York Times bestseller. I circled it, and I emailed it to him, and I wrote underneath it, "Worthy, but I guess not so dull."
0: <laughs> so, drinking water, which yes. is the subject of this book, I know you touch on a little bit of other water health. You know, it's one of those we all take it somewhat for granted, although not so much, obviously, in light of crises like Flint. Yes, but it's it's something that flows into our taps. It, at a time, carried as you point out cholera and other diseases that destroyed massive swaths of the population. But for the most part, the idea is that it's safe enough, right?
2: You have it exactly right. Yeah. The go- government has created this idea that water, as long as it's safe enough, as long as there are people battering down the doors of City Hall or the EPA, that they can get away with leaving the water not as healthy as it could be or should be. Right. But what has happened is that in the past call it, couple of decades, we've had developed all kinds of new measuring tools that allow us to understand what's in our water in a way that we didn't know earlier. On the other hand, we're using technologies, this sounds hard to imagine, a t- day, an age when everything is advancing so quickly, every year everything is new that we're still using technologies to treat our water, our wastewater, and the drinking water we get, and they're sort of un- united in some way, that we still use technologies that were invented about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And while the parking lots are nicer and the reception areas of these water facilities are much nicer than they were 100 years ago, the water that's being delivered is more or less the same. What has happened significantly, though, in that intervening 100 years is that America has become a very much of an industrial society and a medicalized society. So the residues of billions, billions of pills taken every day come back to us in microscopic amounts in our drinking water, and industrial solvents and industrial chemicals are coming back to us in our drinking water as well. And this is really the, the cry at the center of my book, the demand that we know what's in there, we know it can't possibly be good for us. We know that every few years, whether it's lead or now more recently PFOA or PFAS is is con- causing concern. We know that there are other things in there that are, can't be good for our health. So the question is, why aren't we doing something about it? And are we going to wait until there's a announced public health crisis before our elected officials and our publics will start demanding it?
0: Totally. And I want to, let's talk about all the systems that are involved. But first, in terms of What's in there, as you mentioned, I mean, I thought that when you, when you were talking to the scientist who's looking at fish and in there she was finding amounts of, wa- amounts of antidepressants to the extent that they could identify exactly which ones that were concerning. When you think about how that's showing up in fish alone when you think about the the sort of to- the toxic stew that we're consuming in our water pharmaceuticals then as you mentioned the the chemicals and and you point this out and I think a lot of Americans don't realize this but countries like the UK in personal care for example you know they've banned 1400 or more chemicals from personal care products whereas the US has only banned 11 and similarly they, in order to use a chemical, you have to first prove that it's safe for human health, whereas in this country, there are what, like tens of thousands of chemicals, and we don't understand? There are over
2: 100,000 chemicals. And to put a fine point on how crazy that ratio is, there's over 100,000 chemicals in daily commerce in the United States. Some of them are pharmaceuticals, some of them are, are, you know, things used in industry, some are plastic chemicals. But Uh, So you would think that the EPA doing their job, and this is not just a Trump issue, this is across all administrations and all congresses of both parties, you would think that the EPA doing its job would be regulating half of them, 75% of them, 90% of them, all of them. So let's say the number is only 100,000, even though it's a little bit more than that. The real number of chemicals being regulated by the EPA is 70, Mm. 70. And as crazy and as outrageous as that is, the last time any chemical has been regulated by the EPA was 23 years ago. Mm. So that means, again, across all kinds of administrations and all kinds of Congresses, regardless of stories about Flint in the newspaper or not, we are still getting basically the same kind of water treatment that we were getting a while ago. And on top of that... There are thousands and thousands every year of violations of what is the, regu- of, of the law that regulates all this drinking water. Thousands of them. Millions of Americans are ingesting chemicals that are determined by the EPA to be dangerous. Of those 70, there are still thousands of those that get through this ridiculously non-enforcement enforcement system that we have, which is kind of an honor system. Utilities report what they want to report. And even when they report they have a problem, most of the time nothing is done.
0: Right. And as you, there are very few instances, right? There's Hoosick Falls, which you write about with, with, with Teflon and PFOAs. There's Flint. There's the, the other Teflon communities that have reported these incredibly high incidents of disease. But as you rightly point out, it's it's in the water, right? There's never any culpability because it's impossible to prove causality, We're just collectively all ingesting these these things along with all the things that we're putting on our body. And some of us have deleterious outcomes, cancer, autoimmune disease, but there's no way to trace it back and say, oh, it's coming from the tap, right? It's like smoking in the sense that there's no, we we know it's bad for us and we know that it increases risks of lung cancer, but you can never say it's because... X, y,
2: well, right. The causality piece is clear. But here's what, here's where the part is not with any dispute whatsoever. We know that although there are individuals who smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and live to 90 and never even develop a cough, and that there are people, and i have friends, sadly, to say this, who've never smoked a cigarette, who've developed lung cancer and then passed away from it. So, so there is no guarantee that if you're a smoker, you will die from, from lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee that if you're not a smoker, you won't. That's true. And that's the causality piece. But we know from epidemiological studies, from from statistical studies, that any group of, say, 1,000 smokers are much more likely to contract a whole variety of of bad health outcomes than non-smokers are. So on a person-by-person basis, you're absolutely right, we can't tell. But in terms of generalized populations, there's no question whatsoever about the fact that smoking is bad for your health. And And the government has gotten together on that and puts warnings out to people and why they haven't banned cigarettes is just a whole other question, which is not for today. But the same thing is true about drinking water. We know for a fact that in populations that have certain chemicals in that water, they have higher incidences of lower IQ kids. Mm-hmm. We know that they have ADHD, the kids have ADHD. We know that they have higher levels of obesity, higher levels of, of, of diabetes. We know that they have higher likelihoods of thyroid cancers and amongst men, not your core listener, but still, testicular cancer. So that we know that liver cancer, kidney cancer, and all the different kinds of cancers have a direct statistical, statistical link to higher levels of exposure. And then we also know that our water, when tested, and it isn't universally tested, oftentimes has these different chemicals in it. Mm -hmm. Now, the other problem we have, what a number of scientists, and I spoke to many scientists, and these are people who are esteemed scientists who I spoke to as your your listeners, if they choose to read the book, will see, is they talk about what they call the cocktail effect. And so it is true that a specific chemical, when found regularly, will be more likely to cause, say, ovarian cancer or or thyroid cancer or something like that. That's true. But what we don't yet know is what happens when the quantities vary. What happens when it's a little more of this chemical but also added to that and that and that chemical, and that's what's happening with our drinking water that's where the problem lies.
0: Yeah. And I love the point that you make, too, when it comes to doses, right? Because people love to say, oh, it's the equivalent of like 8,000 swimming pools and it's one tiny drop, so how could it possibly have an impact? And people make that claim about personal care products as well. And it's like, it's not, particularly for things that are hormone disruptive, right? Correct. Um, the, The tinier they are, the more imperceptible, the more... Destructive they can potentially be, and we have no way of knowing, right? We don't test pregnant women, we don't test fetuses and newborn babies, and so you get into these really silly debates about dose, where there we'll never know, right? It's just guesses. Well,
2: think about lead. Think yeah. about lead. Think of how how think about how long it was that lead became not just an acceptable uh, material for pipes, but a mandatory one. You know, Chicago. Chicago required that every pipe that fed into a person's home until 1986 had to be made of lead, had to be made of lead. Now, there are a very large number of lead pipes as a result in Chicago, but also not just Chicago, lots of other cities too. There's about 10 and a half million lead pipes in the United States. Mm -hmm. And yet, why did we allow that to continue on when starting in the 1940s, we began to understand that there was a direct causal link between higher lead levels and lower IQ. How is it possible, starting in the 1970s, we knew there was a direct causal link between higher lead levels and higher likelihood of dropping out of high school and criminality? How did we allow this? Mm-hmm. And yet and yet, there are communities all over America that still to this day have lead pipes going into their homes. And I would venture to say that many, many people that we think of as, you know, people who think of themselves as smart and hip and know what they're going on and care about their health— Don't realize what they're ingesting because, as you said at the start of this program, that we take this drinking water for granted. We assume that somebody's going to be looking out for us. Now, Now, here's the kicker. The kicker is that, as I say repeatedly, is that we have the tools, we have the knowledge of how to make the water pure and clean today. We know that. But what many people have done, and the statistics here are also daunting, is they have reverted to what they think is a parallel water system and a safer water system, and that's bottled water. Mm. Now, it is true that some bottled water is actually quite good. It's bottled at the source. It's clean and pure. But when the bottle comes in plastic, as it does the vast majority of the time, what happens is the hydrocarbons that make up that plastic bottle— over time, leach chemicals from the hydrocarbons into the water that's in the bottle. Particularly if the bottled water has been stored, as probably is the case, in a warm warehouse, or God forbid, in a hot car when you go off for a hike or the beach on a summer day and you come back and you have that baked bottle of water. There's almost a certainty that the chemicals and the hydrocarbons have now leached into the water. We know for a fact that those very chemicals are dangerous for fetuses. We know for a fact what the effect is. Now again, not each and every time, mm-hmm. but that particular chemical that gets leached in, it's called phthalates, causes all kinds of dysfunction in sexual organs of newborns. Yet people have come to think that bottled water is the safe alternative. And sometimes it is, but it isn't universally. And I make the argument that instead of us having, and there's a real number, 70 billion containers a year that we have to dispose of, yep. the vast majority of which are not recycled, instead of having that show up in our landfills and our oceans, we should just simply bear down now and say, we're going to fix our tap water. And then once we fix our tap water, just as when we were young people, no one drank bottled water. It was was unheard of. And so we can go back to that where we don't have to have people drinking bottled water because it really makes no sense.
0: It makes no sense. And as you point out, and I want to talk about how it came to be that water is something that we pay for specifically, but if... You think about the amount of money that we all spend on bottled water, and I know you make this case in the book. People are consuming most of that bottled water in their homes. Yes. They're willing to pay a premium for something that they believe is safer, better tasting, better for their health. Can, by Can we not invest that into things like what Orange County has done, which I think I want you to talk about at length because it's so fascinating.
2: Well, look, I mean, people spend in just the United States last year about twenty billion dollars. That's at that's at the wholesale number. At the retail or the restaurant level, it's you know, I mean, five, eight, seven times larger than that, but certainly more than double that. So it's 40, 50, $60 dollars are spent a year in the United States on bottled water. And for that kind of money, we can buy ourselves pretty darn good drinking water everywhere, but the problem is everyone has been alienated from their drinking water systems. Everybody Mm -hmm. is thinking of themselves that they have to protect themselves and their families, and when you say that most bottled water is consumed in people's homes, the number is crazy. You know, the, the way the bottled water industry, and again, I don't hate them. They're doing what they should do, and they're responding to the incentives society gives them, but what they've done is they've convinced people that it tastes better or that it's more convenient, you know, like when you're going on the road but nonetheless more than 60% of all bottled water is consumed in your home. Mm. Another X percent is in people's offices, which means that the vast majority of bottled water is consumed within steps of a sink. So people could just turn on the faucet, have generally speaking a, a very easily available water if they felt comfortable and confident that that water was safe.
0: Yeah. So how do we, and I know, so right now I know it's, it's, theoretically under it's with the EPA, and they've sort of failed to take any action on our part. And you would like to see it be with health and human services. The idea being that we're prioritizing health of people rather than the cost of regulations and an impediment to businesses who then might need to confirm that these chemicals that they're using aren't going to give us all cancer, right?
2: That's exactly right. I'm not an ideologue. I'm a very pragmatic person. Yeah. And so my bias is that if the EPA can do the job, keep it there. It's fine. I I don't really care. But as long as the EPA is going to take the attitude of being focused on cost containment Mm -hmm. and being comfortable saying to industry, it's okay, industry being the local utility, saying you don't have to improve your game. Then I think that we should send a message out to society <clears throat> that the that the rules have changed, and therefore to move it over to Health and Human Services, which is another cabinet-level position, would be a wonderful idea. And that Health and Human Services includes the Centers for Disease Control. They have lots of laboratories where they test for for human health, and I think that that would send uh, send an important message.
0: And and also, obviously, when you're thinking about cost containment, and then you think about down the line the implication. For all those lost IQ points, the treatment of a citizenry that is full of cancer and autoimmune disease, and you think about those costs as as well as the costs that we're all, this this generation and and millennials will incur for replacing all of those lead pipes and sort of antiquated plumbing, then we're just deferring the cost. We're not actually really saving any money. And
2: we're going to have to spend the money anyway. And the reason why I know that and you know that is because Pipes may, you know, the pipes. Pipes last a long time, but it's not like the Roman. Uh, uh, it's not like the Roman aqueducts. It's not like they're going to last two or three thousand years. These pipes are made to last anywhere from 50 to 125 years. And we, we, there were three great building periods in America's uh, plumbing build-out. if You can call it that: the 1880s, the 1920s, and early 30s, and then post World War II. And we have the bad luck that the materials used for each of those three are now just about at the end of their useful life. So we had last year in the United States 240,000 water main breaks. Mm. So we have to wait until the city has to rip up the street, all the shopkeepers on that street have to be out of business, transportation has to be disrupted, and people's lives thrown into mayhem before we actually fix the the water lines in America. We're going to have to fix our pipes anyway. And I would argue, again, as a pragmatic person, let's fix it in a logical, systematic way Understanding that some of the pipes have another years or five years or ten years or even twenty years to run, but that within the next twenty years we're going to have to be replacing somewhere in the vicinity of a million miles of America's water mains. At the same time as we're doing that, we have the opportunity to remove every single one of those ten and a half million lead service lines that feed into people's homes. And I have, uh, I, I will. I'll share with you that I've uh, I've been invited, after this book came out, I've been invited to come to the White House. This is the Trump White House, I might add, to speak with them about ideas that could be made better, easily, faster, cheaper, without spending vast amounts of money. And one of the ideas that I gave them, which I, I hope that they're taking seriously, is the idea that what could be done immediately is to say that we're going to do a testing of every school and preschool in America, every daycare center in America, because those are the children who are, those are the p- people who are the most vulnerable to lead when it gets into their systems. It, it, you can lower their IQ up to the age of about 12. If you're older, you have other issues, but but that's the case. And why don't we do a national census and identify all the school buildings and preschools and, and nurseries that have lead service lines. And then let's say we'll take a five-year period and just make it a national endeavor, we'll be proud of ourselves, that we will make sure that there is any school building in America by 2024 or 2025 that has a lead service mm. line. I am driven by that, by a compelling and frightening statistic. Governor Cuomo, about a year and a half ago, did a, asked to have a study done of the, all the school buildings in New York State. And it turned out, you'll be shocked to hear this, it turned out that over 80% of the schools in New York State had lead service lines feeding the schools. Mm. So we're allowing our children to go to schools. <laughs> we're also at the same time contaminating their systems and frying their synapses. So that we are going to not for every one of them again. It's like the cigarettes, but for some percentage of them are going to have worse health outcomes and worse intellectual capacity as a result of that lead. I say this is an easy to fix problem at not a lot of money, and this would be where I would absolutely start my endeavor.
0: And theoretically, jobs too, and work for Americans. I mean, the for sure.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. this would be a, this would be an economic boost. It would be an infrastructure yeah. project that would you know f- feed lots of families.
0: We'll get back to Seth Siegel in just a second. Detox month is all wrapped up at Goop, but I'm still trying to keep things relatively clean and our food team is always looking for the highest quality ingredients in every season to work within the kitchen, and that includes the bar cart. The team has developed a number of cocktails using Kettle One Botanical, which is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no carbs and no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. There are three Kettle One Botanical varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. And they all make for really fresh tasting cocktails. If you're looking for inspiration, see the goop recipes for sumac, salty dog, or the peach and flowers, or just grab some Fever Tree soda and mix a botanical spritz. You can order Kettlewind Botanical on drizzly.com to try it out yourself. That's D R I Z L Y.com. On the average day, I spend a lot of time indoors, and I definitely spend too much time looking at screens because I work at Goop, I know all about earthing or walking barefoot outside to help me stay grounded. And more recently, I've been learning about the role indoor lighting plays in overall health and well-being. Brilli is a new home lighting brand designed to support your natural biological rhythms. Brilli's Charge Up collection is designed to stimulate the brightness and clarity of natural daylight. These bulbs are ideal for working under and powering through your to-do list. Brilli's Wind Down collection is designed to simulate late afternoon and evening light. Picture a soft warm glow. There's less than 1% blue light in these bulbs to help you unwind at the end of the day and prepare to sleep. And their Get in Sync collection allows you to customize the light spectrum throughout the day, simulating the full range of effects from sunrise to sunset to support a healthy sleep-wake cycle. While Brilli's lighting is unique, everything runs simply. You don't need any special software or hardware. Just turn on the lights and you're getting the wellness benefits. To try Brilli for yourself, head to bebrilli.com and use code GOOP to get 15% off your first order. That's B-E-B-R-I-L-L-I.com and use code GOOP. Back to my chat with Seth Siegel. The the conversation around lead is was so interesting to me, too, because some of the details of what exactly had happened in Flint to create that crisis were lost on me when it happened. But if you can sort of walk us through both, like, what can happen when pipes get shaken up, just even by, like, physical traffic, but also how they're running chemicals through those lines on a consistent basis to keep them... Covered, right? Yes. They're creating an internal so that the water doesn't touch the lead. I mean, that's that does not seem foolproof.
2: No, we know now that it is not foolproof. So, so I did a lot of research for this book. I read hundreds of government reports, and and as, as people can see from the bibliography, but I also interviewed about a hundred different uh, people, a lot of government officials, a lot of scientists. And one of the more compelling ones that I interviewed was a man who had been the number two person in the EPA in the early 1990s under the first George Bush administration. He's a fabulous guy, smart, caring. He's, the, he's your movie version of a public servant, not cynical in any way, only caring about doing great things. And he told me that in the early 1990s, a decision was made for cost containment purposes. He was number two at the EPA, so not health focus, but cost containment focus primarily. And they decided that it would be too disruptive and too frightening to too many people and and basically have to spend too much money removing all the lead service lines in America, all the lead pipes in America. So they came up instead with this idea of using what's called an anti-corrosion approach. And this is known for quite a while now that you can use a variety of chemicals to coat the interior of a lead pipe. And the idea is that that water will flow through that pipe easily and not touching the lead walls of the pipe. And therefore, the the person, the consumer who gets the water, should not be in any way affected by the lead. That was the theory. And so a great emphasis was put by the EPA on this corrosion control approach. Now, here's the problem. (laughs) The chemical that's used to line the inside of lead pipes has as its core ingredient, guess what? Lead. (laughs) So when it works well, it works perfectly. When it doesn't work well, it's a catastrophe because what happens is you have this buildup of this sort of this chalky material, this solid material that fills the inside of the pipe, but then when there's a disruption, a heavy truck goes over the roadway or there's a jackhammer up the street for some purpose or another, or indeed as happening in Chicago just recently, they were removing water mains to repair them, but they weren't removing lead service lines and it caused all kinds of vibration. What happens is, is that two things happen simultaneously. Lead particles fall from the coating. People don't realize they're drinking it. They're getting tens of thousands of times higher lead levels, not a few times higher, thousands and tens of thousands of times higher lead levels than they would if the pipe had been left alone. And when the interior coating falls off, water again is touching the, the lead on the outside. Here's the kicker, Elise, here's the kicker. You think when you're drinking, hmm, this water tastes funny. You can't taste lead, you can't smell lead, you have no idea that you're drinking lead. In fact, we know from boil water alerts that you know after there's E. coli that gets into water, you can make the water safe by boiling it. In fact, if you boil the water that there's lead contaminants in, it makes it more concentrated and possibly worse for you. Mm-hmm. So there is nothing that someone in their home can be doing to fixing that lead service line problem that's feeding into their system, their body. And, and so therefore, the only real answer is prohibition. But what does the EPA say instead? The EPA says instead that there's a safe or safe enough level of lead. Okay, as we understand, they say, that you can't get to zero unless you pull the pipe out and replace it with another pipe. But since you can't do that, they say, because it's too expensive, it's too, too many lawns have to be torn up, God knows whatever reason— we're going to come up with what we call a maximum contaminant level, and we're also going to have a goal. For a goal is zero, which means that's the real safe level, but we're going to play a little bit of Russian roulette here and say that some percentage of people are going to get sick, but not everybody. And that's true, by the way, not just for lead. Right. It's true for all other kinds of chemicals too, arsenic as well, all kinds of chemicals that we find in our water. Now, as long as you're the person who doesn't get sick, <laughs> you know that's good news. But why are we playing that game? Yeah. We know how to fix it.
0: Totally. And within with, what happened in Flint is that they changed, because there are thousands, I was, I was fascinating, thousands of water utilities, many of whom serve-
2: Tens of thousands.
0: Tens of thousands who serve many fewer than 500 people. Yes. So there's no sort of consolidated system to establish safety and consolidate resources and scientists and testing but that they switched water to save money because these people are paying for water, even people who- They switched who, to the water source. Right, switches water source, and it was more acidic and corrosive, and they didn't adjust the chemistry correctly, and they stripped all that anti-corrosion off those pipes.
2: Correct, exactly right. And so that's, and, and then, but that's only half of the scandal. The other half of the scandal is the the- anemic, the ridiculously poor state of testing of our water. Mm. So it is a true story that Flint had reported to the EPA just weeks before the scandal broke that the levels were close to zero of lead, that they had no problem at all. Mm. Now, this is part of the problem is that we don't even test at all for that whole vast array of other chemicals I spoke about earlier, pharmaceutical residues and industrial solvents. We only test... I mean, there's some exceptions. I, I don't want to go too far on this. But but we mostly t- ask utilities to test for those 70 regulated contaminants, lead being one of them. And even in that context, it was reported that there was no problem whatsoever. It just shows that you can't have an honor system where utilities are testing for themselves, either because they don't know how to test properly— or because they have every incentive to manipulate the test results. And this is true for pesticides that get into our water. Uh, can I share a crazy yeah. story? This was an open open scandal for many years. In farming districts, in farming districts around the country, there are times of the year when you use pesticides and you generally spray it from an airplane or, or from a uh, crop duster that goes across the field. So what the local water utilities did, because they had to report to the EPA was they knew the date that the spraying would begin. Now, in a health protective universe, what you would do is you'd want to know is what is the worst possible outcome so you could protect against that. But no, 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 that's not what they did. They all would test the day or the two days before the spraying would be done, so they could honestly report that in this quarter or this half year, the levels of pesticides in the water were in the safe, not zero, but in the safe category. And a wonderful organization called Environmental Working Group made a decision to go ahead and test water after the spring, only to discover that it was, in no case was it in a safe level, in, in, under the EPA's own safe levels. This is an example of manipulated testing. Another thing I'd like to say about this, in this day and age of instant test results, where everything is transparent and everybody can talk to everybody anywhere in the world about facts and numbers... Why do we still have this opaque system where each utility, 50-some-odd thousand of them, by the way, have to aggregate their data, then send it to their state capital? some bureaucrat in the state capital then aggregates all the utilities in that state, and then he or she then sends it on to Washington, D.C., to EPA, some long interval after it's been tested, meaning that there could be bad health outcomes in all that period of time. Why can't we have a system where testing is done frequently? and transparently so that even if there's a decline in local media, there's local bloggers. I can find out in my zip code what was in my water last week, and I can find out what was two zip codes away and why are they getting a better outcome than I'm, I'm getting, and we can start developing a citizen's movement which is based on real-world data and not on paranoia. Exactly. One of the things mm-hmm. that industry does is they say, and they said this to me, I, I was try to be fair. I interviewed people from all across the spectrum of water for this book. What they would say to me is, yeah, but, but, you know, if the test results were bad, we would know about it or we would do something about it. We are kept from getting good testing information, so therefore we can't do something about it. Mm -hmm. This is a continuous loop. We can fix a problem if we know there is a problem. And if we are kept from having essential information, we won't be able to fix the problem.
0: Right. And then like so many of these issues, it becomes about class, right? Because the wealthy can install reverse osmosis. Filters and buy bottled water from Fiji, and hey,
2: don't say anything bad about Fiji.
0: I know, I know, Fiji's. I love Fiji. Fiji's amazing. Okay. I'm just saying, we can, we can, <laughs> we can buy Fiji. Oh yeah. Oh, I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We sorry. can buy Fiji water, and and other beautiful waters, and then poor communities are left with outcomes. So it's it has to be a universal fix. I love your idea too that water, like water, should be. Free for those who cannot like water should never be shut off in someone's home. It's an inalienable right. We have food as stamps. Human. We have I know. we
2: have housing allowances. We have clothing allowances. How do we how do we allow millions of Americans a year to have their water shut off? And, and by the way, I want to tell you something. Even in the poorest communities in America, really, uh, and I have to be careful to say this properly, in the most economically deprived communities, because uh, I, I interviewed a man named John Doyle from the Crow Nation Reservation. Mm-hmm in Montana in
0: Montana home state
2: and, yay <laughs> and and uh, a million plus acres is the reservation the water there is such of such quality even though the people are so economically deprived that they have no choice but to buy bottled water yeah and so and, but i think you're absolutely right though and what your point is, is your larger point is that is that we have better air quality because wealthy people understand that they can't wall themselves off mm-hmm. from from air quality, not can walk around with you know a, a Gucci uh, <laughs> <laughs> gas mask. So, so, uh, so they have no choice but to make sure that the air quality is better for all. In terms of water, it's true that there is a class divide, and it's a, it's a scandal that, that poor people have worse outcomes in everything, education, housing, yeah. nutrition. I mean, it goes right down the list, access to the digital world and all that, but, but this is, again, this is something that's completely ridiculous. We can be fixing our water everywhere, and one of the points that I make, which is that there are, just in Los Angeles County, there are 200 separate water utilities, That's totally unnecessary. And there's a historical reason for it and so forth, totally unnecessary. We should have an EPA that is proactive in saying for the interest of public health and the interest of aggregating enough uh, rate payers so that we can buy new technologies and replace bad pipes, we want to have smaller, better, stronger water systems, as was done, by the way, exactly that in the UK some years ago.
0: So let's talk about some promising stories. And I love the story of Orange County is amazing, not only because they solved, they have what you call the purest water maybe in the world, (laughs) but also that they have figured out how to recycle water, make that acceptable to people, yes, and solved water scarcity for that community, which is clearly something we all need to get on board with.
2: So... Uh, There's a phrase that I heard a lot during the research for my book called toilet to tap, and it's deliberately used to scare people away from water reuse. Mm -hmm. And the idea about water reuse is that particularly in fast-growing or dry communities or both where you have lots of water. You have sewage. Mm -hmm. That's water. It's just disgusting water. It's dirty water. And we have lots of water in the world. It's just that it's salty water. I mean, 97% of the world's water is ocean water, so it's not drinkable. We have lots of water out there. The question is, how do we make use of it for ourselves? So in a variety of communities, mostly in California, by the way, it's where it started uh, some years ago, there were efforts made to take wastewater, sewage water, clean it to a high level, and then reuse it for drinking water purposes. And consumers, not being properly educated on what was involved with that, created a citizen's revolt movement, and they coined it Toilet to Tap. And I tell the history of the Toilet mm-hmm. to Tap movement in, in the book. What we've come to understand is, and particularly through Orange County, is that with the proper technologies, you can make wastewater, sewage, the cleanest water you can possibly get. The water that comes out of the tap in Orange County, California, because of this extraordinary uh, treatment that they use, and you think it must cost them $10 a person a day, not even close, not even close to close. What we we end up discovering is is that you can get that water to the cleanest level uh, scientifically possible, where there are no contaminants in it. And not just that, Orange County doesn't wait to be told by the EPA that there's 70 contaminants or 7,000 or seven, or or or, or, or 100,000 contaminants. Their attitude is they're not waiting for a message from the EPA. They're removing all of the contaminants. Mm-hmm. So if there's pharmaceutical residues found in their water, they're taking it out even if the EPA doesn't require that they do that. And what does all this cost? Even though they also use that same system to kind of keep the seawall, they keep the ocean water away from their, their aquifers, they spend only about 30-something cents a person a week. So that means for for, call it $50 a year or something in that vicinity, a year per person, everybody in that community is getting really high quality water. And my argument is that now we can do the same. Now Orange County just discovered in the last, since the book has come out, that they are also have some wells that are, have been contaminated with these PF, PFAs uh, as well. And they have a plan now in place to remove the PFAs and they're gonna do it in the same way so that the water will be as pure as pure can be and that everybody can drink safely. And intelligently.
0: And they've secured their water source.
2: And they've secured their water source. So that you talk talk about, you know, places in America that's subject to climate change, where rainfall patterns are falling, where there's much faster population growth, where are they going to get the water from? They're going to ship it from hundreds of miles away at a massive cost and carbon fuels to to transport that water? Well, that's a ridiculous idea when you have water right there. And so rather than simply dump—you know what the uh, current American law is, which is almost a case study in craziness, is we take all the sewage, and assuming that the community does everything that's required of them, they clean it to a certain level required under a law called the Clean Water Act. And then after they've cleaned it, they then dump it into either a river or a lake or the ocean. Now, if you live—you mentioned earlier that study that's found uh, uh, psychiatric medicines in, in the brains of fish. If you live in the Great Lakes, which is a massive, massive, massive area of water, you would think that it can't possibly be that those fish are getting sick from, from any human contaminants because there's so much water there. But the scientist who you referenced earlier, Diana Aga— She found that about 50% of the fish in the Great Lakes had either Selexa or Zoloft, one of 14 other psychiatric medicines in their brains and in their organs and in their muscles. Hmm. And that means that our wastewater treatment facilities are not doing what Orange County, California is doing. What Hmm. they are doing is they're cleaning it up to the EPA-required level, and then dumping it. And that, to my mind, is just craziness. We're just kicking the can down the road so that it can bounce back at us into our babies, into our fetuses, and into ourselves. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to say anything until there's scientific proof of it, but I, I will posit for you and for your listeners that the explosion of all kinds of endocrine disruptions that are mm-hmm. happening in recent years it wouldn't be impossible to imagine that there's a correlation between us ingesting bits of medicines, each one of which is is job is to modify our bodies, right? You take a pill to either be more fertile or less fertile. You take a pill to be either happier or a little less manic. You take a pill to have higher blood pressure or lower blood pressure, and on and on and on. There's 50,000 pharmaceutical products approved by the FDA. So when those get, you take them in, within six hours you start peeing them out of your body. Within 24 hours they're out of your body completely. It goes into your wastewater. It comes back because it's not treated out of the system. It comes back through your river system or your lake system. It comes back into your drinking water. You're drinking tiny quantities of it. And God knows what effect it's having on your system. Again, in this cocktail of a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and, and I, I myself have to wonder why it is that we have these explosions of all kinds of different ailments and problems today.
0: Yeah, and then you think about what it's doing to the fish and then all the— the, the entire food supply chain. I mean, it's just, we're wreaking havoc on the natural world. We are. So it sounds like we have some work to do.
2: But here's the good news. My first book was about water scarcity around the world. It was called Let There Be Water. And I ended with what I think is happy news. A woman in an audience once in San Diego said to me, every time I read an environmental book, I want to commit suicide because I think by tomorrow I'll be eating my next door neighbor's kids. Yeah. So, so she said, your book gives me hope because you give me solutions. So I want to say the same thing. I think there are solutions here. We know the technologies we need to use to fix these problems. What's lacking is public awareness and public will, and there is no audience, if I may just flatter you, there is no audience that is smarter and more self-aware about health and health needs than the universe of Goop listeners. And I would say, I beg people, get in touch with me, and all I will say is my goal and my dream is to create a mass movement here or a large enough movement of concerned citizens that will start demanding of our elected officials that something happen. And you know what's going to happen? Once that elected official gets the third phone call on a a given Tuesday, by Wednesday, he or she is going to ask a staff member to get smart about drinking water issues and say, come up with four solutions that we can use today. And there are those solutions at hand.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Seth Siegel. To learn more and get involved, head to SethMSiegel.com. That's S-I-E-G-E-L. And make sure to get a copy of his book, Troubled Water, available now. Now, over to GP for today's AMA.
1: Nikki asks, do you ever feel like your business goals and spiritual or environmental goals are in conflict? And if so, how do you reconcile that? That's a very good question. I don't feel on a goals level that I have conflicts because, you know, I think we are very conscious about what we are putting into the world, the efficaciousness, the quality of the products we make. I think for me, it's more always striving towards how can we make this packaging more sustainable or how can we make the business sustainable? carbon neutral or more sustainable and those are things that we're always adding implementing and it's it's really a goal of ours for 2020 but i don't feel that i'm ever compromising fundamentally my spiritual or environmental goals in amplifying the business otherwise i don't think i'd be able to do it
0: thank you jp If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.